Hi, my name is Jessie from the Vegan Society of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and we can be found at www.vegansociety.co.nz, and you are listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, Let's well. get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Welcome to another episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I'm recording this on William Paul's birthday. I'd like to make a toast. William, you're always out there, on the streets of Auckland, uh, homeless. <laughs> no, just kidding. Out tabling on the streets of Auckland and you never ask for any credit. On this special day, or, well, night when I'm recording this, we're all reminded of how you've become one year closer to death. May we rise to sing, happy bur- Ah, oh, come on everyone, sing along with old crazy Jordan. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. To you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Yeah, that's right. I was down with synthetic voices before it was cool. This episode is not just an excuse to sing along with the Robo Choir, though. I'd like to mention my recent blog post, an open letter to Eric Marcus. In the post, I asked Eric of vegan.com if he would please stop promoting different kinds of welfare reforms as a way forward of asking, quote, for vegans to team up with conscientious omnivores to push an issue. I think we should instead avoid funding think tanks to come up with new variations of non-vegan, of ways to sexy it up. I think non-vegan is just fine. Otherwise we get into some kind of crazy half-page description. Well, I'm a meat-eater, leather-wearer, toast-smeared with eager fur as murderer, milk is for adult men tour... Vegan and non-vegan suit me just fine. I think neither is a loaded term. My letter was linked to by Gary Francione. It was nuts. From my usual couple people a day who stopped by my blog, it was as if I'd picked up a... The number of people who visited my blog rocket jumped its way up into BFG territory. For those who didn't grow up playing Quake 3 Arena, a lot more people visited, okay? Before I read the post, I'd like to mention a couple of examples of misguided activism. Quote... Isn't man an amazing animal? He kills wildlife, birds, kangaroos, deers, all kinds of cats, coyotes, beavers, groundhogs, mice, foxes and dingoes by the million in order to protect his domestic animals and their feed. Then he kills domestic animals by the billion and eats them. This in turn kills man by the millions because eating all those animals leads to degenerative and fatal health conditions like heart disease, kidney disease and cancer. So then man tortures and kills millions more animals to look for cures for these diseases. Elsewhere, millions of other human beings are being killed by hunger and malnutrition because food they could eat is being used to fatten domestic animals. Meanwhile, some people are dying of sad laughter at the absurdity of man, who kills so easily and so violently, and once a year sends out cards praying for peace on earth. So begins the forward to the oddly named Old MacDonald's Factory Farm, the myth of the traditional farm and the shocking truth about animals suffering in today's agribusiness. Ooh, I see the cheapest used copies start from an American dollar. I think that's about 4,000 New Zealand pesos, plus halfway around the world postage, of course. 
So the theme is about how evil, how miserable, how inhumane, how Hitler-esque, quote, factory farming is. No mentions of veganism as a moral baseline there. With that opening about all the animals killed, he kills domestic animals by the billion and eats them. This in turn kills man by the millions. I suppose that could be overlooked, as long as they're not from the first name, old, last name MacDonald and his factory farm, right? <laughs> from a review of the book, he discusses genetic engineering, environmental effects, transportation of live animals and the ethics of factory farming. While his book makes a strong case for vegetarianism, Coates also advises consumers how to look for humanely raised meat products. <laughs> this is not for readers with queasy stomachs. I've been listening to more audiobooks while I work. A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson mentions lead. As Patterson increasingly became a liability to his institution, the school trustees were repeatedly pressed by lead industry officials to shut him up or let him go. According to Jamie Lincoln Kitman, writing in The Nation in 2000, ethyl executives allegedly offered to endow a chair at Caltech if Patterson was sent packing. Absurdly, he was excluded from a 1971 National Research Council panel appointed to investigate the dangers of atmospheric lead poisoning, even though he was by now unquestionably the leading expert on atmospheric lead. To his credit, Patterson never wavered or buckled. Eventually, his efforts led to the introduction of the Clean Air Act of 1970, and finally to the removal from sale of all leaded gasoline in the United States in 1986. Almost immediately, lead levels in the blood of Americans fell by 80%. But because lead is forever, those of us alive today have about 625 times more lead in our blood than people did a century ago. The amount of lead in the atmosphere also continues to grow, quite legally, by about 100,000 metric tons a year, mostly from mining, smelting and industrial activities. The United States also banned lead in indoor paint, 44 years after most of Europe, as McGrain notes. Remarkably, considering its startling toxicity, lead solder was not removed from American food containers until 1993. As for the Ethyl Corporation, it's still going strong, though GM, Standard Oil and DuPont no longer have stakes in the company. They sold out to a company called Albemarle Paper in 1962. According to McGrain, as late as February 2001, Ethyl continued to contend that research has failed to show that leaded gasoline poses a threat to human health or the environment. On its website, a history of the company makes no mention of lead, or indeed of Thomas Midgley, but simply refers to the original product as containing a certain combination of chemicals. Ethyl no longer makes leaded gasoline, although, according to its 2001 company accounts, tetraethyl lead, or TEL as it calls it, still accounted for $25.1 million in sales in 2000, out of overall sales of $795 million, up from $24.1 million in 1999, but down from $117 million in 1998. In its report, the company stated its determination to maximize the cash generated by TEL as its usage continues to phase down around the world. Ethyl markets TEL through an agreement with Associated Octel of England. If we fight certain uses in certain products, then we waste a hell of a lot of time compared to just asking our communist tyrant dictator to say, lead is bad, don't use it in our stuff, okay? 
I know, I know, it gets in the way of the free market. Perhaps kids don't need all their brain cells. I mean, hey, you get what you pay for, right? By focusing on the problem of getting rid of lead outright, results are made. There are no free-range lead or humanely killed lead, Temple Grandin smelted lead or lead-free Wednesdays confusing people. We speak out plainly against lead. Sure, some countries are slower than others, having more lobbyists and the like. We certainly shouldn't be working with the lobbyists on making the lead production more efficient. And also notice the terms used. Okay, so market research leads us to understand consumers don't like the word lead, right? They don't like seeing it in their child's milk formula, or that it's in the main metal and baby's first fully automatic rifle. So what happens? Well, the companies responsible cook up a new friendlier sounding name, a bit like conscientious omnivore, meaning someone who eats other animals who we kill for their flesh, not to mention the bodily secretions we take from them. In my own country, we recently made a big deal about lead and bullets, which got hunters all angry. Bloody greenies taking away our lead bullets, the whole point is that they kill things. The new ones aren't as good. Just like CDs compared to vinyl, and what the hell is an iPod? I think those people have spent too long handling lead over the years. Or, what about the dumping of waste? Perhaps nothing speaks more clearly of our psychological remoteness from the ocean depths than that the main expressed goal for oceanographers during International Geophysical Year of 1957-58 to 58 was to study the use of ocean depths for the dumping of radioactive wastes. This wasn't a secret assignment, you understand, but a proud public boast. In fact, though it wasn't much publicized by 1957-58, to 58, the dumping of radioactive wastes had already been going on with a certain appalling vigor for over a decade. Since 1946, the United States had been ferrying 55-gallon drums of radioactive gunk out to the Farallon Islands some 30 miles off the California coast near San Francisco, where it simply threw them overboard. It was all quite extraordinarily sloppy. Most of the drums were exactly the sort you see rusting behind gas stations or standing outside factories, with no protective linings of any type. When they failed to sink, which was usually, Navy gunners riddled them with bullets to let water in, and, of course, plutonium, uranium, and strontium out. Before it was halted in the 1990s, the United States had dumped many hundreds of thousands of drums into about 50 ocean sites, almost 50,000 of them in the Farallons alone. But the U.S. was by no means alone. Among the other enthusiastic dumpers were Russia, China, Japan, New Zealand, and nearly all the nations of Europe. So there I was, having my usual chuckle. Ha, those crazy Americans have fun with Palin 2012. When, <laughs> New Zealand? Toxic waste dumpers? I mean, what the? We're, we're a nuclear-free country, though. I mean, we have smoke alarms with America, Ian, inside. But, 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 nuclear waste, huh? Well, that may explain this next clip from the book. And what effect might all this have had on life beneath the seas? Well, little, we hope, but we actually have no idea. We are astoundingly, sumptuously, radiantly ignorant of life beneath the seas. Even the most substantial ocean creatures are often remarkably little known to us, including the most mighty of them all, the great blue whale, a creature of such leviathan proportions that, to quote David Attenborough, its tongue weighs as much as an elephant, its heart is the size of a car, and some of its blood vessels are so wide that you could swim down them. It is the most gargantuan beast that earth has yet produced, bigger even than the most cumbrous dinosaurs. Yet the lives of blue whales are largely a mystery to us, 
Much of the time we have no idea where they are, where they go to breed, for instance, or what routes they follow to get there. What little we know of them comes almost entirely from eavesdropping on their songs, but even these are a mystery. Blue whales will sometimes break off a song, then pick it up again at the same spot six months later. Sometimes they strike up with a new song, which no member can have heard before, but which each already knows. How they do this is not remotely understood, and these are animals that must routinely come to the surface to breathe. For animals that need never surface, obscurity can be even more tantalizing. Consider the fabled giant squid. Though nothing on the scale of the blue whale, it is a decidedly substantial animal, with eyes the size of soccer balls and trailing tentacles that can reach lengths of sixty feet. It weighs nearly a ton and is Earth's largest invertebrate. If you dumped one in a normal household swimming pool, there wouldn't be much room for anything else. Yet no scientist, no person, as far as we know, has ever seen a giant squid alive. Zoologists have devoted careers to trying to capture or just glimpse living giant squid and have always failed. They are known mostly from being washed up on beaches, particularly for unknown reasons, the beaches of the South Island of New Zealand. The book's showing its age there, being from, you know, way back in 2003. We've watched live giant squid by now. Oh yeah, I forgot about those giant and the even larger colossal squid. <laughs> Duh. I'd been telling my Swedish friend it was cool to come here. Everyone's friendly to others in New Zealand, unless you're Australian or an Aucklander visiting the South Island. That we had no dangerous animals, that before the white man rolled into town a couple hundred years ago, there were basically no mammals. The birds didn't even bother flying. Many were flightless. We had no dangerous animals, no snakes, bears, hornets, big feet. That as a people, we weren't armed to the teeth, and that the worst animals here were like uh, one type of spider, the whitetail. That jumped ship from Australia. But they're only in the godforsaken North Island. Apart from them, well, the worst monsters are cats and rats. A great deal of extinction, Flannery and Shooten discovered, hasn't been cruel or wanton, but just kind of majestically foolish. In 1894, when a lighthouse was built on a lonely rock called Stevens Island in the tempestuous strait between the North and South Islands of New Zealand, the lighthouse keeper's cat kept bringing him strange little birds that it had caught. And no, that's not like when Mr. Rooster brings the hen's falafel he's found. The keeper dutifully sent some specimens to the museum in Wellington. There a curator grew very excited because the bird was a relic species of flightless wrens, the only example of a flightless perching bird ever found anywhere. He set off at once for the island, but by the time he got there the cat had killed them all. Twelve stuffed museum species of the Stevens Island flightless wren are all that now exist. No, somehow I overlooked giant and colossal squid. All those tentacles that come up from the drain while you brush your teeth and all those ships that get pulled under each week. <laughs> you know, they're easy to forget about. We human animals are still the most dangerous here, of course. Quote, Fonterra, the dairy giant, says it's looking at alternatives to dumping waste into a Tararua river, <laughs> following a backlash from the community. The dairy cooperative dumps 2 million litres a day of milk powder waste from its uh, Pahia Tua, uh, I wish you had a podcast of your own, William, to cover these North Island names, dairy factory into the Mangatanoka River, a tributary of the contaminated uh, Manawatu River. It has been seeking resource consents to continue doing that so for 22 years, shifting its dumping site to the Mangatanoka River in five years' time. 
Imagine some guy with a standard 10-litre plastic bucket of, quote, milk powder waste. In plain English, that would be crap from the dairy industry, thrown by the bucketful into this river. We dump all sorts into rivers here. The North Island in particular has many rivers unfit for swimming in, with strange algae blooms and, oh, giant squid. A local slaughterhouse here has the standard pipes going out to a river. You can see wastewater and who knows what's in that. Blood, guts, cleaning products, apparently a lot of fecal material. You know, shit. And this is just down from a natural waterfall, the Matara Falls. I've included a lot of amazing photos in my sources, which you'll be able to see on the blog post for this episode. Being episode 38, you'll find it at www.bit.ly slash coexist38, or at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com anyway. 200,000 10-litre buckets worth of crap, each and every day, and for at least another 22 years. Imagine watching someone throw bucket after bucket of garbage into the river, and not saying anything. If we saw someone throwing rocks at a duck in the river, we'd stop them, and then go on home to eat a killed chicken's flesh. If we saw someone dumping their car ashtray into a river, we'd stop them. But we see pipes from a factory, putting goods together or ripping animals apart, and we just look the other way. It's just normal. I think it's just as damaging to other animals when animal advocates promote non-veganism. I'll read my blog post now. An open letter to Eric Marcus, because I'm just certain you're one of my five listeners. Dear Eric, When I had first become vegan, I listened to your debate with Professor Gary Francione, perhaps the finest 32 kilobytes per second mono mp3 file I've ever heard. You are indeed a master of lossy audio compression. My own episodes waste more drive space while offering a fraction of the actual content. Kudos to you and Francione. I quickly realised where I stood on the issues discussed. Larger cages for hens, of awarding feel-good terms to those who buy animal flesh and bodily secretions, to, to learning how happy meat, animal products can be compared to a Connecticut minimum security prison. Do you not find it odd that 56 billion totally innocent land animals get to ride old Sparky each year? Remind me not to jaywalk in Connecticut. Eric, one of your most recent blog posts offended me. Quote, between the resultant higher feed costs and the end of direct production subsidies for meat and dairy products, animal agriculture as we know it would cease to exist. That this sort of move is even on the table for public discussion shows that we've reached a pivotal movement, and that an unprecedented opportunity has fallen into our laps. If there's ever been a time for vegans to team up with conscientious omnivores to push an issue, this is it. No, this is it featured a non-moonwalking MJ. I mean, what kind of rip-off is that? It's a little like a vegan.com without the vegan. I can assure you, as a New Zealander, living in a country without subsidised animal agriculture, this will do nothing to help the animals. We are sadly quite efficient at exporting animal flesh and their bodily secretions. Our free market does not involve an invisible hand cooking the books. That hand's too busy cooking the animals I love and care for. Quote, Output and net incomes for the New Zealand dairy industry are higher now than before subsidies ended, and the cost of milk production is among the lowest in the world. Your article was forwarded online among many non-vegans, including New York Times food journalist Mark Bittman. The term you used, conscientious omnivores, albeit shortened above for a tweet, has become a buzzword, a way to feel good about ourselves. Rather than saying, I like to eat dead animals, I find their bodily secretions rather yummy. 
Hip non-vegans may now instead boast, Oh, I'm a conscientious omnivore, you know. I only eat humanely slaughtered animals, you know, because I care for them so much, you know. And where are they getting this Temple Grandin equals animal rights activist thumbs up from? Vegan.com Your debate with Professor Francione had a mention of how welfare promotion could cause his rescued dogs to bark. I end this open letter with mention of how each time a curious non-vegan discovers vegan.com and its backing of free-range methods of killing chickens and all other animals, my friend Mr. Rooster glowers in disapproval. Insert photo of a pissed-off Mr. Rooster friend here. He may be a bantam, I may be 1.95 metres tall or 6 feet 5 inches, but I find him terrifying when he gets in this state. Please Eric, change your website's URL. Might I suggest nonvegan.com or antivegan.com? If not for me, then for the animals I love. Yours, Jordan Wyatt, Invercargill, New Zealand. P.S. I would love to hear you debate with Professor Francione again. So far I haven't gotten a response from Eric. I think I can imagine what would be said, however. When I've asked why other animal rights activists are not promoting veganism, they normally state how veganism is seen as difficult by most people, or that I don't care about the animals suffering the horrors of, quote, factory farming right now. I normally ask why other people see veganism as difficult. Who has been telling them otherwise? I normally say I find it as easy to be vegan as not. For example, the white substance on my morning cereal, there are two very different products on the same shelf for about the same price. I pick up the soy milk. It's just as easy as picking up another kind of white liquid used to douse your morning cereal. And, what about the animals suffering right now? I'm aware of them, but I understand the problem with welfare reforms to be that it distracts from promoting veganism, that it further sets up divisions between what is the worst thing to do to non-human animals, well, perhaps on a 1 to 5 scale at Whole Foods, and that no reform I've ever heard of, even if it succeeds, is implemented instantly. It's always, oh, in the next uh, five years it'll be phased in by industry, which is often further delayed. I don't think we should pretend that anything apart from veganism is ethical or right in our minds. If it's good enough for me to be vegan, if I'm smart enough to understand killing other animals versus not killing other animals, then it's easily understood by anyone. Speaking of those words, distractions and divisions, very close to the real animal rights D-word. But, 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 divisive. By opposing our brilliant schemes of rating animal flesh from a 1 to 5 scale of suffering, of giving animal rights visionary awards to slaughterhouse designers, you're just being divisive. To which I, as an abolitionist vegan, say, Oh no, not the D-word, anything but the D-word. All my arguments, videos, statistics and resources, they can't help me now. I've been blown away by the D-bomb. You cursed rat! Look what you've done! I'm melting! Melting! Oh, what a world, what a world! Who thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful By the way, was anyone else afraid of Wizard of Oz growing up? Not so much the melting witch death. Oh, who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? <laughs> Sounds like programming for children. Do what mummy tells you. Be a good girl. Brush your teeth and you too can melt witches. Well, speaking about how confused I am, my mother actually used to call me a little girl. Yeah. 
Actually, that's better than the lies told to me by my parents. Eat your carrots, Jordan, and you'll be able to see in the dark. I also stopped eating the crust of bread. I hated my crawly hair. No, even scarier than screeching green-painted woman melting to death is the 1985 Return to Oz sequel, if you can call it a sequel with such a hell of a time lapse. The original movie came out in 1939. Hard to believe, right? <laughs> of all the movies I've ever seen, none will upset me more than Return to Oz. I actually don't like watching it now. I've brought the DVD. I highly recommend anyone listening watch it if they want to be scared. Return to Oz, I'll link to it in my resources. Okay, so, basically, Dorothy now looks much younger, being played by a girl who goes on to star as love interest in The Waterboy with Adam Sandler. That awful Auntie M, or should I say it more like Annie M? Why not just save time and call her little dog O-O as well? I suppose it's like YouTube and YouTube. I'll stick with my New Zealand accent, otherwise it sounds fake, like when you try and pronounce a foreign language. So, after poor Dorothy screamed her name a billion times in the 1939 original movie, Auntie M ends up taking her on a long journey by horse and cart. We see the giant horse whip, and as Toto yips his warnings to Dorothy, who mentions being worried for him not finding his way home again, Auntie M, will he be alright? Auntie M, without even looking back, tells her, he will. And where is Dorothy being taken to? Why, a mental hospital, of course, where some quack explains how our brains run on electricity, and how this device he's made, with its dials that look like a face, will zap some sense into her. The probes look like metal headphones. And what has Dorothy done to deserve this? Did she spend millions of dollars promoting, quote, more humane ways to kill innocent animals? <laughs> no, she instead still believes Oz is a real place. So Dorothy is leather-strapped to the bed, ready for a 1.21 gigawatts of sense juice, when a storm cuts off power, and a mysterious girl rescues her. The two little girls escape. It's all about them. The actual mentally disturbed patients are moaning and screaming in the darkness. It's scarier than the Hannibal Lecter prison scenes. All the staff are screeching for them to be caught. A strange flood, the girls fall into a swollen river, being chased by an evil-looking nurse who claws at them. They fall into the river and hold on to a driftwood chicken coop-looking crate, with the staff gazing down coldly at them. Well, the other girl vanishes in the storm, presumably drowned, let's be honest here. Even young Jordan watching on a VHS tape realised what had happened. Sometime later, the storm is cleared and Dorothy wakes up to find herself in Oz again. It's hot, and she's surrounded by sand, just like Australia. She is a talking animatronic hen, Belina, with her. She recognises the surrounding sand as the deadly desert. Yeah, you touch it and you turn to sand yourself. This is a Disney movie made for children, remember? Rocks start having evil faces appear in them. We find that somehow the yellow brick road is all blown up with spray-painted yellow bricks every which way. Oh, and everyone in the former, now jawless Emerald City, has been turned to stone, as they last were. They all look miserable. I don't think I could imagine a happier place from all of children's books and movies in the Emerald City. The whole damn first movie is all singing, all dancing about how bloody great it is, with midgets from the Lollipop Guild no less who do nothing but prance about all day. I suppose there is one witch who creeps them out every now and then, but it's not like she blows up the whole place, there's still lollipops and ponds everywhere. I guess Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory would come close, but it's let down by its shocking safety record. The place really is geared up for quirkily killing children, Sweeney Todd style, and where do you think Soylent Green comes from? So, the Emerald City would be my pick for happiest place in children's fiction. 
Another unhappy place I could think of would be a sort of Neverland Ranch, where the farmed children never grow up, as they're killed before their teenage years. And now, for no real reason, after decades have passed from the first movie, it's shown blown up. Why would they do that? I suppose it's a good thing many who grew up with the original movie were long dead by the time Return to Oz showed up. The horse of many colours was probably flogged to death and then sold for cat food by the wizard. Some of the statues of giant cracks through their bodies, other statues' heads have fallen off, a foreshadowing of a future witch who changes her head and wants to cut off Dorothy's own after locking her in a non-humane room for her to mature. The only other living beings we find are a gang of freaks calling themselves wheelers who roll about on all fours. They have rusty wheels for hands and feet, dressed in purple leather suits and tentacles with masks on. They chase down a little girl and her chicken friend into a dead end, and then have her trapped in a stone room. This really is a children's movie, and by Disney too. You'll hear their rusty wheels in the clip, and those laughs. <laughs> Come here, chicken! <laughs> Presumably the wheelers are the Oz equivalent of the real-world mentally disturbed patients. The Gnome King turns out to be some creep made of stone who makes statues of living people. Imagine being a little boy, visiting his local museum which is a Victorian exhibit with period costumes similar to the movie, with mannequins being told by an older friend that they come to life at night, of walking through the gardens with white st statues of people, just like in the movie. Regardless of the fact they're a pack of gang members who just chased the young girl into a dead end, it's obvious to me that anyone who doesn't like chickens is a very nasty person, who needs to learn how to behave, and by a tarnished gold robot called TikTok, like that idiot song by Keisha or Akasha or whatever, 
he really is a ripoff from the Star Wars movies. The quote, final movie, Return of the Jedi, would have come out about two years before the Return to Oz. They even ripped off the name. Imagine C-3PO and R2-D2 melded together, a, s- a short, squat man made of gold. Somehow, he's good at beating up wheeled freaks and teaching them to behave. Please, let me go. Behave yourself now. I will behave. I'll, I'll behave. <laughs> behave. <laughs> I'll be off. <laughs> We can skip over the evil gnome king and the locked up freak with a pumpkin for a head who keeps calling little Dorothy mum, giant vine hands brought to life with magic powder. At one point, Jack's pumpkin head actually drops off while they are flying on a monster they brought to life called a gump. I think of it while watching Forrest Gump. It had the green mouldy looking head of a killed stag, quote, trophy. His head falls off to fall through the clouds while he calls, help me mum of Dorothy stealing the key from a sleeping headless body to unlock a mirrored cabinet filled with other sleeping heads. The mirrored cabinet contains the head-changing Mombi's original head, which of course is hideous, and comes back to life as Dorothy steals the magic powder that turns things into somebodies. The screaming heads wake up the headless body, and in the end, Dorothy wakes up back home, seeing the mysterious girl Ozma, ruler of Oz, in her dresser mirror. When asked by that awful Auntie M, what she has shrieked about, she has to pretend not to see the vision. I mean, are you nuts? <laughs> she doesn't want to be pulled by a whipped horse back to the mental hospital again. Well, a different one. It's mentioned the place burnt down, probably a bit like the death scene in the Green Mile, where there was no water on the sponge, a screaming disturbed patient caught on fire and the place burned to the ground. The evil doctor himself burnt to death, and the main nurse is seen being taken to prison for... what? Uh, I'm not sure. Probably for scaring little girls. It's just a freaky movie, and again, Disney thought this was appropriate for children. It creeps me out still. I'm glad they decided to focus on nicer movies, such as The Lion King. The movie really couldn't be any worse. It destroys everything anyone ever loved about The Wizard of Oz, which was apparently seen as scary for its time, I should mention. It couldn't be a worse sequel, even if the cowardly lion showed his courage by eating Toto whole, and then badly mauling Dorothy, it really couldn't be. Oh. And I should mention that the budget was too cheap. At the end, the cowardly lion is a non-talking animatronic lion. Scarecrow is a giant cartoon-style puppet made real. The Tin Woodsman, a weird-looking cartoon robot. They all hardly talk except to say, Dorothy, every now and then, such as when they're brought back to life. Legal guardians not believing what actually happened to you, dropping you off at a mental hospital to be shocked regardless of what you have to say, of mysterious girls drowning beside you, of sand that turns you to, well, more sand, of purple leather-suited freaks who roll about on wheels, of heads kept alive in cabinets, of a land where chickens are hated. What a terrible, terrible movie, terrifying for young boys left alone to watch from a blurry VHS tape. Still... It has nothing on that devastating D-word, divisive. I received my first DMCA takedown. The American music industry was annoyed with me for playing a song on episode 35. 
probably for playing that Justin Bieber song. Funny that. I used a short clip from some idiot pop song in my whole episode where I poured out my heart about losing my hen friend. It gets taken down by Google automatically. Yet, nobody at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures bitched when I created a whole new metric term dedicated to Dr. Yates. Which of the two is more important historically? I link to the music too. I buy all songs that I've played and encourage others to buy music. If anything, the use of very short clips and podcasts serves as promotion for the song. I sure know that I buy songs from iTunes all the time after hearing them on podcasts. Anyway, I'd better be more careful in future about using music from those who sell their souls to the mob. I mean, uh, American recording labels. Although, what are they going to do? Fly down here in their private jet? All 20 odd hours of the flight to cut the USB cord of this headset mic that cost me like, a uh, 20 American dollars at second hand, too. Hey, don't you be violating Mr. Bieber's masterpieces ever again, capiche? Huh. I'll let the giant and colossal squid deal with him. Big shots from the northern hemisphere wouldn't have a clue about the terrors of the South Pacific Deep. They're used to wriggling about and slimy practices alright, but all it'll take is a quick, Hey guys, would you like to brush your teeth while you're here? Just a little closer to the drain, that's it. Then it's all over now, baby blue. They'll experience subterranean homesick blues at the bottom of the Pacific. They'll be knocking at heaven's door alright. I have to come clean here. I've only been vegan for two years at the end of this year. For whatever reason, I figured out aspects of vegetarianism for myself. I drank soy milk, didn't eat hens periods, I mean, uh, bird's eggs, I didn't wear skin or wool, but continued to eat products with milk inside. I guess because everything in New Zealand is milk is a contaminant. So, I can hardly lecture other vegans on veganism. Teaching your grandmother to suck vegan egg substitute, as the old New Zealand saying goes. I can surely talk about how I found out about veganism, how I probably had never heard of the term before I became vegan myself. It's not something that was brought up here. I don't remember seeing vegan clothing or suitable for vegans labels. The large quote animal rights groups never promoted veganism here either. From what I can tell, things have really taken off. Seriously, think of how veganism is known by mainstream people, how the term is used casually by beer ads and farmers. Those bloody vegans at it again. Once upon a time, it was vegetarians who were the weirdos. Now, it's the vegans. Next will be raw vegans, then fruitarians, and finally, breatharians. Newspaper articles promoting happy meat and other byproducts we take from other animals use the term vegan, not vegetarian. I think it's great to be recognised. And I can think of those who have been influenced just by knowing me, of friends who worked for Safe Here, who have gradually moved away from welfare reforms and who were vegetarians for years, who are now vegans, just from knowing someone who talked about veganism for a few months. What they decide to do is their decision. I certainly don't have a little notebook where I tally up scores as if I'll have a bigger mansion up in heaven for converting more people. I'm trying to do as much as I can to promote veganism. I write into newspapers, the ones that are still stagnant about at least, waiting for the comet to extinct their drastic asses. Blogs, through social media, such as Facebook and Twitter. Think about it. Each time I post something about veganism on Facebook, all my quote, friends, see it. The people who went to school with me, who I haven't seen in years, they get to hear me talk about how much I love chicken friends now. And on Twitter, I search for the word vegan, and, and offer friendly advice to people saying, I'm thinking about being vegan, but Peter tells me it's really hard, and... 
I also comment on the really negative comments, things like, you know the worst place in the world to be for Thanksgiving? I think the answer is pretty much anywhere but the two countries that celebrate that particular genocide of native peoples, of killing birds for us to gorge upon. Nobody else in the world has a clue about Thanksgiving, but whatever. No, apparently the correct answer for worst Thanksgiving locations include being in prison and being at a vegan's house, because, you know, that tofurkey has just got to taste worse than eating someone's flesh, right? With the bones, skin, fat, the guts in a plastic bag inside, they do that, right? By being genuinely warm and friendly, I've managed to turn people who dismiss veganism into friends, or at least followers. One brat, probably about 10 years old, was going on and on about virgins. Oh, how experienced he was. Oh, how the ladies loved Big Dick 69, or whatever his name on Twitter was. And then he got stuck into those vegans, you know. I sent a good-natured message about veganism to him. He somehow brought up virgins in relation to veganism, and made some rude remark about me being both, because surely, women are only attracted to men who kill and eat animals, right? So I posted that it really isn't too difficult to figure out that, you know, well, supposedly, stereotypically, there's about nine vegan women to every vegan man, that many of those vegan women wouldn't be interested in a relationship with a non-vegan. And so, who happens to fall from the sky but little old me, one of the roughly ten vegan guys on this whole island? Well, surely after such a drought, tall, sensitive vegan guys with chicken friends are very popular with the vegan ladies, right? The brat conceded this was sound logic, and decided to follow me on Twitter. By being friendly, a fairly abusive little punk turned out to be all talk, trying to impress, uh, someone, the internet, and his five Twitter followers, but underneath it all, he was a decent person. I can remember how I was before being vegan, how I probably would have felt others were preaching or self-righteous. I do my best to avoid coming off that way, to mention how I see veganism as good enough for me, good enough for everyone. Another fun conversation on Twitter was had with a guy saying he was having a date with a vegan soon, and would she mind him eating animals? I replied that she probably would, but most certainly the animals don't want to be killed, that they would mind. Well, from there, he went fairly nuts, tweeting a dozen times about how pushy, obnoxious, lame, whiny, moany, complainy, and any other made-up word he could imagine, vegans were. I stayed very polite throughout, which normally angers people more, until I was finally told I could politely go F myself. Well, in the meanest tweet I sent to him, I said that with such an attitude towards others, human and non-human alike, that his vegan date would probably leave him to do just that tonight. A recent article about a vegetarian who would eat the flesh of a turkey caught my attention. Being vegetarian for environmental reasons, she said, she found herself deciding that she couldn't think of reasons not to eat a quote, free-range heritage breed turkey. Seriously, I was at work at the time and I nearly broke my iPhone from the surprise. How the hell could a vegetarian think that? Oh, it's good to eat these birds because otherwise the bad kind of farmers, you know, factory farms, mass production, standard breeds, they win otherwise unless I pay for this animal to be killed. But I'm still vegetarian for the environment. Outrageous. She was asking for cooking tips calling herself a turkey virgin. Here's one reason that springs to mind. We shouldn't be killing others because they don't want to die. That each turkey is no doubt just as special as my chicken friends. Most of the advice are jokes about vegetarians and vegans. Glad you've realised how nuts those freaks are, etc. One comment was from a vegan who was upset at how animals were treated. The comment ended, I kid you not, with, At the very least, say a very big sorry to the animal on your plate. 
Now, I guess I could take that as sarcasm, as something typed out while upset, but at the same time, I could see it as a genuine request by Peter, a way of making people understand that animals were alive and now they were put to sleep for us, worded that way if they were describing a heritage breed, free-range raised turkey, or else it would be, they murder these innocent animals on awful, evil, nasty factory farms. You can help the animals go veg now. Unless you have dementia, you should still be aware I look after chickens and love them very much. Last night I ate my dinner outside, and I had my little friends clamouring to get on the plate and eat with me. It was rather cute looking, uh, I guess, but irritating at the same time. They've all sorts of tricks, ways to peck at me a certain way, and then making eye contact. They really are meaning, come on, give in, I want it. If I bring my bag outside and it has bread rolls inside, they'll drag their beaks across the material twice, meaning they want the bread. I don't really see much difference between turkeys and chickens, especially not ethically. I could never so much as sarcastically joke about, well, make sure you say sorry to the headless corpse whose ears are ground up into who knows what, turkey McNuggets or cat food, I wouldn't have a clue. There's no way that a dead headless body can understand, or care, how sorry you are that you just paid money for the living animal to be killed. And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. Well, Safe's campaign wheel still hasn't hit veganism yet, but I'm hoping there's hope for everyone to change. And each time we talk about veganism, it really might be the only shot we have at talking to that person. So it makes sense to talk about veganism. The best outcome would be for Eric Marcus to be abolitionist himself. That he'll drop the talk of how great it is when people switch to free-range X or a Whole Foods five-step welfare standards that, and speak about veganism. It's crazy that non-vegan people visit vegan.com and find fairly little information about actual veganism. It really is. I would love nothing more than for Eric to promote veganism. He has a great website address for it after all, and I think he's a confident speaker about the issues. I don't agree with how he sees things, but I'm sure he's a nice person. Failing that, please, Eric, if you really have no interest in promoting veganism as the least we can do for other animals, I'd love if you'd give the name over, so it could redirect to the abolitionist approach site, or hell, even I'd take it off your hands, this old blogspot account ain't what she used to be. I'm sure I could get a 7th listener, or maybe even an 8th if I had vegan.com, a really obvious address. I love looking through my logs to see how many people found my site. The best entries are from those looking to buy the non-vegan products I mention. They've seen the ad for Real Man's Yogurt, made from stolen baby animals food, from a mother forced into knocked upitude, and they come across my blog, my show, promoting veganism. I had an aww moment when I saw a UK visitor had found my site searching for Google for sleeping hen videos. I'm not sure if they heard me talking about Miss Hen, the last video I have of her alive. The video is on my YouTube account, but they found it anyway. My blog is about the third hit for sleeping hen video on UK Google, although it makes a difference if you logged in or not, the search results you'll get. Vegans promoting veganism is really becoming popular. I love hearing and seeing about what others are doing down here in New Zealand, getting out there on the street each weekend and talking about veganism. These activists don't need any salary to do this. They talk with people and hand out abolitionist vegan information because they care about animals. They do this with their own time and their own money. 
Despite the Invercargill Vegan Society having but a single member who turns up for meetings, veganism is actually taking off, here and worldwide. I prefer to think of it as 100% of the payroll going right to me. I'm trying to do more myself. I think we're really getting that wheel spinning, and things most certainly seem to be different now. We don't need large welfare promoting groups, we can do it ourselves. We're doing just fine by promoting veganism with vegan volunteers. I was at the bank yesterday when the gorgeous teller with her beautiful red hair asked me, is there anything else I can do for you for the millionth time that day, as she flickered between making eye contact with me and looking at my vegan badges on my overalls. I wished her a wonderful day, they're not used to the customer telling them that. I hope in future, if she sees my badges again, that she'll ask, or who knows, maybe she's vegan herself, and then the Invercargill Vegan Society can have a second member. I'm not the only person who believes IVS should have more than one member. Barbara DeGrand of Veganacious.com was helpful enough to send me this clip. Hi Jordan, good timing. I just found this morning something on Twitter that was posted by someone whose uh, Twitter name is JT and Stuff, and JT has posted the following, and I'd like to quote him because he puts it so well. The idea that you can have a truly informed meat eater in 2010 in civilized society is nonsensical. In exactly the same way you can't have an informed, hence compassionate, and therefore excusable rapist, racist, or murderer. Any informed meat eating or otherwise animal exploiting human is either in a state of denial or isn't actually fully informed. If you are a vegan, irrespective of whether you think some people are unlikely to accept your message or not, you should help others understand and appreciate the value of sentient life, meaning, of course, that other animals should never be treated by humans as mere objects to buy, sell, and use. For you as a vegan to do otherwise, especially as you've done here, simply reinforces the misconception that other animals can justifiably be exploited for the sake of social convention, business, certain humans' taste buds, habits, or anything else. And here JT is commenting on the animal welfare rating for Whole Foods markets. And uh, he's giving it a thumbs up on his blog on vegan.com. And um, many vegans are shuddering because we know this is just more uh, ways for the meat producers for the animal exploiters to try to soft pedal their evil products. And to see a vegan um, buying into this is, is pretty disturbing. And uh, while possibly well-intentioned, it certainly seems misguided. It seems like at the core, vegan.com really isn't asking for very much change. They seem very satisfied with um, just the fluff on the external stuff like um, a welfare rating system as if that's going to do anything to change the uh, status of animals or um, bring justice about and let them have their own lives to live, um, which of course it will not. It will just simply further um, promote uh, meat eating and let people assuage their conscience as if they're doing something mo morally coherent when of course they're not. And there's even doubt that any of this welfare reform will have any impact because there's no way to regulate it. We don't have enough government inspectors to inspect meat and the conditions of slaughter, much less to give a rating system. So um, they're pretty well meaningless. Um, and uh, what you have uncovered about 
the false promises about ending um, animal agricultural subsidies as if that will have any impact on the uh, supply of animals for food products is fallacious and we know that we have to attack the demand side through vegan education, changing people's attitudes, and helping people become educated and aware that animals are not that different from humans in that they feel they want to be with their families, they want a life, they want to be out in the sunshine, and they want to drink water when they're thirsty and lay down when they're tired. They do not want to be a piece of meat. And vegan.com seems to be missing all that. You can find Barbara's own website and podcast at www.veganacious.com, V-E-G-A-N-A-C-I-O-U-S dot com. Vegans promoting veganism, which in turn creates more vegans. Who would have guessed? Then don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are changing With harmonica like that, who needs bells and whistles? By promoting veganism as a moral baseline, we're all making real progress. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode, as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com. If you want to contact me, even just to say you've listened, send an email to jwontdart at gmail.com or on Twitter twitter.com slash j-a-y-w-o-n-t-d-a-r-t I'd appreciate it. I'd especially like it if you'd follow me on Twitter. I'm having a little competition with Barbara. Well, it's a one-sided competition. Um, <laughs> I've currently got 300 mem... Well, actually, 298. Okay, well, people have dropped off. <laughs> Great. I've got 298 followers. Barbara's kind of got 8,144. But I know I can beat her. To all the 298 people following me on Twitter, thank you for listening. Away from the notion of animals as things, and toward the moral personhood of animals. The choice is ours. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for you. It's certainly better for the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.